Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another edition of the MSP Initiative live, actually on the road. Both of us, I think, are on the road uh, this week, but it is, Mar uh, I'm sorry, March. It's April 13th, hopefully not in bad date in the calendar, but uh, it's amazing how before we know it, we'll be, a, I feel like we're going to be in June, like tomorrow, but I digress. Uh, some quick housekeeping rules uh, or housekeeping that we go over, and then we'll get into the good stuff. So, mspinitiative.com you'll find we've revamped the website looks a little prettier if you haven't seen it recently so this session and every other session we've ever recorded will be there in both podcast and video format you'll have uh, our msp community minds event coming up in august in denver so august 13th and 14th put those on your calendar uh we've already scheduled a bunch of smart people in the room that will help basically bring more than a PowerPoint slide deck and bullet points that you forget when you walk out of a conference room. So um, you'll, uh, you'll get more information about this shortly, but uh, MSP Community Mind is going to be our one event uh, to drive people to live other than these parties, the community block parties. So we have one coming up uh, in a, you know, a little less than a month in Prague. So if you're going to the Enable Conference, um, you know, we're going to be doing a block party there. Uh, we have DattoCon in Dublin in June. So if you're headed over to, uh, you know, enjoy the, uh, the fine pubs of Dublin, we'll, we'll have something uh, pretty good for you there. We have the Taylor Business Group Big Bay Community Boat Party. Uh, that'll be in Fort Lauderdale in uh, the end of August. And then, of course, the big one that we always do at the end of the year uh, in Orlando to close the year out. And if you missed the All-American Rejects, uh, don't worry, we're going to have another band this year, and I promise it'll be definitely worth your while, although that one was pretty cool, not going to lie. Um, we have some community offers, so other some companies around the channel are just throwing up some offers on our board. Feel free to check those out. And then lastly is our industry calendar, which you know is just us trying to make, put it all together, right, so that you know what's going on, and you can use this for your own planning. And if you're missing an event here, feel free to submit it, and we will try and get it on there for you. So there it all is, mspinitiative.com. It's been a while, but we bring back Mr. Paul Redding to the podcast. How you doing, Paul? Good. It has been a while, man. You have a completely overhauled platform since the last time I was on here. That's You've been doing some work, man. Well, you know, like, you know, can't, can't stay in one place. You got to like switch it up and like, you know, freshen it up and, you know, maybe like get a new haircut, which for me is pretty easy. Right. But, <laughs> you know, like we got to spruce it up a little bit and uh, man, I don't know. I lost track of how many miles me and you and Ken and the rest of the guys spent on the road, but man, that bus seems like it was forever ago. It really does, man. You know, I, I, I sent you that picture. Our bus driver drove me out to Nashville this week. And since and since all that happened, Slade retired, man. I mean, That's like, like the, the guys moved on in life. We are we are now well in history, if you will. That's awesome. How is he doing? He's he's doing good. He's you know, if you recall, he's kind of a singer songwriter guy on the side. I think he's met up with some other guys here. It's Nashville, right? Like everybody's trying to sell a song. That's Slade's gig, and of course, he'll never stop driving. He's an Uber driver. Wow, but, it's, ama it's amazing well, gig economy, right? I mean, you know, you retire and you get to basically work for yourself. I guess. 
I mean, it's uh, sometimes you just got to have multiple jobs in in the in the pipe. I mean, remember remember back in the day when everybody was walking uh, that, you know uphill both ways and they had three jobs in order to put food on the table. I mean, it's just the modern version of that, right? It is. It is. It's funny. There's so many people that I think are doing that second gig at some level that you would think it was out of, you know, I don't know, a lack of stability economically. I, I believe there's folks like you and me, would you say, you know, you, you never stop moving. I think that's one thing nobody could accuse either one of us of is being complacent or staying still very long. I'm pretty sure when either or both of us retires, we're going to find some other weird gig to continue to do. Probably hundred percent. Maybe we'll just be in the party, the party business. That'll be the, that'll be the side gig. Man, yeah, you're kind of taking that thing over at this point. You know, that's, I, I, I expect that to become, you know, a full blown thing here very soon. The, the concert to me really kicked it off, right? You, you stepped it up there. The boat was, was awesome. You've done it before. The concert was really impressive to pull off, especially considering it was in the middle of a hurricane, we had to bust people through the rain and move the entire thing inside with what, like eight hours notice. I mean, that was, that was an impressive thing to pull off. And ha having been in the music industry myself, when I was young, I know how hard that was to do. Uh, I, you know, like I I've learned, yeah, I know, we know we're a little bit off topic from technology stuff, but you know, I didn't realize how difficult it was in the artist booking business. It's like, it's almost like you're buying a house. You have a real estate agent. They have a real estate agent. Like there's all these things that you got to settle on in order before you come to a, like a closing, you know, like it's, it's very much like kind of parallels that story. And man, it is not inexpensive. No, it's funny. When I got there, remember I told you, I was like, you're going to rent all their equipment and backline. Really? I got there. You're like, okay, true. Every word you said, like, it was rough. I'm glad I didn't have to do that with you. But hey, man, credit where credit's due. That was awesome. I can't wait to see who you have this year. I think, I think yeah. this is going to be really good. Hopefully I'll, we don't I'll, have a hurricane. Hope, well, no, please no hurricanes. Right. Uh, today, uh, I heard that they closed down the Fort Lauderdale airport for flooding, flash flooding. Really? They don't like airport closings aren't really like a normal thing. It shouldn't happen often, but um, yeah, that happened today. So <laughs> I guess Florida's a interesting place. Um, but anyway, yeah, that was uh, definitely an experience. I'm looking forward to it. Maybe after this call, I'll shoot you over some uh, some of the band lists that we're looking at, and we'll uh, we'll take your it. opinion. So yeah, uh, love to see it. So you were in Nashville this week. I know you're, uh, you, you know, you're a frequent Nashville goer. Uh, I think at the Robin Robbins boot camp, or yes, they call it, get something different these days. But I, you know, it's still Robin. No, it, it's it's the technology marketing toolkit boot camp. But you know, it it was still they did uh, Robin came out last night with a video. It's Raiders of the Lost Prophet special effects I, I think i sent you the video the giant ball rolling chasing robin and then the trump impersonator after it, it, she does not disappoint I, I will say this event it's completely sold out it's standing room only in some of the sessions you know you and i traveled through what was the pandemic and the post pandemic and we watched the live thing kind of gradually come back around this year it's back this is fully blown boot camp again. If you can't tell, my voice is shot. I sound like Marge Simpson's sisters. I've been talking for like 72 hours, but yeah, it's good. That's good. I'm glad to hear that uh, it's a little bit more, you know, feeling like normal. I mean, there's, there's every event is definitely on the schedule. So that's for yeah. sure. The question, whether it works or not, is a different story, but we'll, we'll surely find out. Sure. Awesome. So 
one thing hasn't stopped moving, Paul. Like we always say, you know, the same thing over and over again, expect a different result. Well, it's not that case in your part of the world because like compliance is not getting lighter. Frankly, it's getting heavier. And if it's not direct compliance, it's like compliance through some other avenue that kind of backs its way into your, your orbit, right? So the government surely keeps on deciding language. Sometimes they just post language and then decide later what the language actually means, uh, which is very hard to follow. Um, where do things stand today, 2023, when it comes to the conversation of compliance? And there's so many of them, but maybe the ones that you are familiar with, where do things stand from a legal perspective or government regulation perspective? Well, you're right. Uh, the, the reality is enforcement on all avenues is increasing. Um, and, and what's probably the most illustrative, though, is that different organizations are figuring out that they can come after you for a lack of compliance. So historically, if you took something like HIPAA, for example, you were worried about health and human services fining you if you got audited. Now, the class action lawsuits against you for violation of implied contract are way worse than the penalties coming out of health and human services. People don't realize that you are under contract. Let's say you're a medical provider. George, you go in, you fill out the little privacy paperwork. That's a contract between you and that doctor that says that you understand what they're getting and they're going to do the right thing. If mm -hmm. later it's proven that they were negligent, for example, you can't sue them for violating the law. HIPAA is a law, whatever. What you can do is join a class action lawsuit, and this is happening every day, for violation of contract. They promised you they were doing something that they weren't, and now they owe you money. The other side of that is, I don't think it's a secret, almost every state financially in the United States as a whole, they need money. They're struggling. Federal funds are drying up in a lot of cases. Things are getting weird. States attorney generals now are realizing that when you violate a compliance statute, you are violating the rights of the people that live within their states, and now state's attorney generals are going after you. There's a law firm right now in New York, big law firm, just got hit for $200,000 by a state attorney general while they're being audited. The audit will take two years. They've already been hit for 200 grand. New York came in and said, you violated the rights of our constituents. That'll be $250,000, right? So we're starting to see the private sector and the states get involved in what used to be a federal only matter. And what's really crazy, and this, this number blew my mind when I first saw it, there's almost 450 different privacy, security, and compliance laws that are under debate in our country. Every single state in our country is looking at enforcing their own version of a California Privacy Act or a New York Privacy Act. So for people like you and me that have always run tech companies and have worked across state lines for years, imagine what a mess, like you, a true dumpster fire it will be if every single state passes their own compliance standards and you have to evaluate your service sets 50 times to work over state. So we, we have to get a federal standard eventually. I'm going to be honest with you, Paul, it kind of echoes two things that come directly to my mind. One is sales tax compliance has become very difficult now that these new laws, have, like basically wherever it's shipped to, that state's like, nope, you got to deal with me now, tough. And so that's changed the game dramatically on that front. And then like near and dear to my heart, what you're talking about, if all those privacy laws actually get enacted across all 50 states, territories, whatever it is, 
feels like telco taxes. There's 5,500 right. tax jurisdictions. You effectively can't even keep up with it. You need to subscribe to third parties just to do it, you know, keep you informed. I mean, this sounds like kind of that. Yeah, on your side, it actually is very much like that. There's an entire industry on your side of the, the table, right? That all they do is help you pay taxes for telco and make sure you're in compliance with all these different, you know, individual jurisdictions, the municipalities even have different rules for it. And the problem in the US as I you know, never humbly see it, right? The problem in the US is that we are so divided politically, especially in Washington, that it's really difficult to get stuff done. So I think culturally, politically, you ask the average American business owner, do we need a cybersecurity and compliance standard for the US? Yes, I don't think anybody disagrees with that. We're losing a cyber war out there. But the problem is nobody can get together and decide what that is. And so in the absence of federal action, you're going to continue to have states and municipalities and all these different groups put their own stuff together. And eventually it truly will become almost untenable if we can't you know, do something collectively here. So talk to me then about where does CISA, which is a government, federal government body, sit in the middle of all of this, right? Because they keep on putting out verbiage that kind of is almost attacking to the MSP. Like they're almost like, you know, uh, you know, the MSP is in the middle of this. Well, we know that. But then like they're almost blaming the MSP just because they're in the middle of the conversation. Well, I'm going to be harsh. It's not just because they're in the middle of the conversation. It's also going to be because the MSP community has not eaten their own dog food. In a lot of cases, so many MSPs have not applied the same security that they're trying to sell to their customers internally to their organizations. So if you take a look at it, a lot of breaches are caused by that third party provider. And if the MSP community as a whole does not do something about that, you are going to see enforcement against them. In Louisiana, for example, if you sell into the public sector in Louisiana into the government sector and you're an MSP, you must register your MSP, you must tell them what you're doing. And when you have breaches, they're gonna target you specifically as a service provider. I think that one of the issues that we have in the MSP community is we really need to come together kind of like the credit card industry did on their own with PCI and decide there's a framework. There's something, Matt Lee, a good friend of both of ours, right? I, I believe very strongly in his take on CIS, for example. I, I think an MSP needs to be at least IG1, IG2 of CIS. And I think we should all sit down and communally accept you're not an MSP unless you have certain security standards in place. Because what scares me as both a vendor and a consumer, meaning I sell to MSPs, but look, compliance group, I don't have an internal IT team. We have DevOps, right? We build our own platform, but we have an MSP that supports us. Because I was one, I knew how to vet those people. But your average business owner can't tell the difference from a high-quality, well-established MSP and somebody that was fixing broken cell phones yesterday and decided they're going to show up and sell you Microsoft. So I, I think there is a, let's call it a lack of collective, not enforcement, but a collective agreement about what MSP means, what MSSP means, and what you're supposed to do yourself. Not to be mean, but I mean, I think there's a certain layer at which we, as that community, must take responsibility for ourselves for somebody who does it to us. Interesting. I mean, 
it just seems like as much as we're saying there's a political divide at the government level and that I feel like will always be the case. I feel like there's no, you know, like even though there's a lot of smart people in MSP land echoing what, what you're saying, like Matt Lees and all these other guys, MSP land's a little fractured too. I feel like that's why there hasn't been any standard really set. I would agree with that. I mean, if you think about, we call it MSP land, you know, the channel was born out of really the telco world and these really big providers that were doing trade shows, right? The, the small business owner, the guys that you and I work with that are actually supporting America as a whole in their IT, they weren't really thought of when this thing came together. So you've got, you know, I came from telco, you, or you came from telco, I came from networking, you know, this guy over here is a sysad at some organization. We all have such different backgrounds that it's not easy for us to necessarily see ourselves as the same thing and come together and go, look, this is what we're supposed to do. But again, I, I think that fracture is creating risk and where there's risk, there will be enforcement. So, you know, we either come together or we expand our risk and eventually fall subject to enforcement. Yeah. I'm starting to wonder if, I mean, cause we said how easy it was not even that long ago for you to just buy a domain name, set up a website, get some business cards, bam, IT company. Um, in other parts of the world, right, down in Australia, for example, or UK, you know, where they've set this, like the government set a minimum standard where you can't even get cyber insurance without meeting the government, you know, like eight, nine, 10 things that you have to do, right? And like, you actually have to submit that paperwork before you can even apply for insurance. That hasn't quite made it here yet, but- I think it's coming. Man, my wife has to have a license to cut my hair, right? But I don't have to have a license to take over your Office 365, all of your servers, all of your data, everything you've got, the keys to your kingdom. I need nothing in order to do that. You hit on something though. I think insurance is going to change that, right? So back to like the whole compliance standard. People don't understand this, but it's very true. Let's say you are a doctor or a, an MSP that sells to doctors. Mm -hmm. They ask you in your insurance form, do you comply with all applicable laws to the data that you hold? So you say yes, right? Later, you have a breach of healthcare data and it's determined that you weren't HIPAA compliant. Your insurance company is not going to pay you. They're going to drop you like a hot potato. And it's because you lied on your form. You didn't realize that's what it meant. But I think that it's becoming increasingly difficult, for example, for MSPs to get affordable cyber insurance. It's because there's no way to weigh our risk. It's difficult even for the insurance company to tell the difference between this guy and that guy. Insurance there, doesn't drive that. But is there levels of I'm complying or is it just all black or white, Paul? Because like those insurance questionnaires don't leave a lot of room for gray. Well, two different things, right? So compliance, very great. The way I explain it is, you know, let, let's leave HIPAA and the things that normal people think about when you say compliance aside. Let's go to a big one like SOX compliance, okay? So Boeing and Nike, both publicly traded, both have the SOX compliance and GLBA and all these other things they have to comply with. And inside those rules, there's some cybersecurity requirements, but they're super crazy gray because Nike makes tennis shoes and Boeing makes missiles. And so the government cares a lot less about the designs for the new Air Jordan than they do the designs for the new Blackhawk, right? So I, I, I think that 
that's the world that we're living in is the government guidelines are gray and we need to evaluate our own risk. That's why I think the MSPs are in such a unique position to be so critically important in the years coming forward because the typical business owner has no way of evaluating their risk. They don't know what they face. This is a very gray and amalgamous thing. It's, 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 we're being told what to do, but not how to get there. Hmm. So not all roads lead to Rome. Cause like, you know, in, in IT land, there's so many ways to get to the end, you know, result of what you're after. Like, yeah, there's best practices, but there's not, Hey, here's step one, here's step two, here's step three, and you're done. There's like 50 different permutations of how to do that same task. So why is it, you know, is it just a lack of understanding with the people putting out the rules of what you need to do? Are they, you know, basically is the person writing the, you know, the laws just not technical enough to understand what's required to get there? Well, first of all, the laws are written by lawyers to be audited and interpreted by other lawyers, right? Yes, there's a huge technical piece that they bring into it. There's consultants and there's groups that help work on it. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it's legalese. They're, they're writing this thing to be based around policy and procedure, right? But the other side of that is that you're writing laws for entire sectors of the economy. Boeing and Nike equally, or in my world in healthcare, Dr. Smith, the chiropractor, and Kaiser Permanente have the exact same law that applies to them. But back to risk profile, wildly disparate. It's one of the reasons, back to our friend Matt Lee, one of the reasons I think he's so right about CIS as a framework. And I mean, look, I know NIST CSF, there's a million different ways that to your point, you can kind of you know get to the end result. But one thing I do love about CIS is it's actually prescriptive. If you take a look at it, it says, do this, do this to this extent that asks you how far you took that implementation. If I were an MSP today and I had to choose between all these different frameworks that I'm trying to decide, do I align my clients against CSF, to align them against CMMC, whatever that is, I would actually start with CIS. That's why, to Matt's point, I would start with that and simply map that to the other control sets I need to do because CIS tells me what to do. I would love the vagary of this whole thing removed and give me a work plan that says, Paul, Encrypt your client's data at rest and in transit, right? Not protect the data as applicable. Encrypt this stuff this way. And I think that's that's what we need, but it's not what we've got. It's, it's interesting. I feel like, I don't know, a year ago, CMMC was the thing that came out of everybody's mouth. That's the standard. That's the standard. And I guess, like, what changed that now CIS is the one that everyone's focusing on? Well... CMMC was written and was designed to secure the Department of Defense supply chain. Okay. And like HIPAA is designed to secure the medical community. So there are things within CMMC that are too gray and high level for everyone. And then there's other things that are way too specific because they're, they're more in the supply chain world. I, I came out of you know, my MSP, we did a lot of Department of Defense supply chain, submarine factories, armor factories out in Lodi, California, steel factories out in Oregon, and all of them had the same thing they had back then it was DFARS and, and what became DIBCAC and eventually CMMC, NIST 800-171, whatever you want to call it. As much as I 
to an extent like that framework, I've never been a believer that it will truly become kind of the one ring to rule them all because it's it was designed to be industry specific in its own route. And then back to the political thing, what's changed is they don't know what to do with it. They kept pushing back the time frames. It got confusing about who needed to be certified, how many people are going to actually self-attest versus self-audit. There was a time when CMMC came out and there was going to be no more self-attestation. Everyone was going to get all, you know, it was like 500,000 businesses were going to get audited. Now we're down to maybe 80,000 to 500,000. CMMC got murky. And it's because politics and the regime change and all that stuff happened. I mean, Katie Arrington was one of the most brilliant people in cybersecurity, was called the mother of CMMC, was essentially ousted and, and prosecuted at one point. It all worked out for her. But I think that that turmoil has made it very difficult to focus and go, that's going to be the one we do. That could be wrong, but I don't think that's the one. Yeah, I looked into CMMC for uh, a couple of our clients. And when I got to the bottom end of the rainbow, it was really NIST 800. Mm, 171. Is that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's NIST 800, 171 is what it really was. Right. CMMC is is certifying your compliance with 800-171 essentially, right? And, and it, it's changed into a couple of different iterations. It started with five tiers and then now it's down to three. It, it, it's, I, I think that that ball was moving too fast and had too many political plays in it. And now, look, if you're in DOD supply chain, you have to do it, but I'm guessing we're not gonna see CMMC push down the throats of accountants anytime soon, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think they actually pulled, they definitely pulled the, the gas pedal back for sure on it. Like it, it definitely slowed down. Um, what, you know, Paul, I, I, I can't tell you, I feel like every time I talk to you that I bring it up, but there's still a lot of dentists, doctor's office, small specialty practices where they're like, no, oh, I'm too small. They're not looking for me. I'm not worried about it. I'm not paying for any of this. I feel like that conversation comes up almost every time. What's the answer? What's the retort to that? Because I feel like a lot of MSPs struggle when they're guys like, yeah, I don't feel like, don't even tell me about it. Yeah, I, I know what it is. Not worried about it. Don't, you know, make sure my, make sure the lights are on and that's all I'm willing to pay for. So, you know me, I'm never uh, uh, subtle. That is many things, but subtlety is not, is not a characteristic I carry. First of all, I think it's important to point out that not all money is good money. Not every client opportunity is a good opportunity. Not everybody out there that's in the medical community is somebody you should work with. Um, if your client doesn't value what you do and doesn't value their own safety, their own security, the business that they hold enough to invest and actually spend time or at least the money to let you do your job, it's hard for me to justify you putting yourself at risk to work in this compliance sector. Because I mean, think about it. I'm working with 12 dentists and none of them do what I tell them to do. And all of them have the bare minimum. And then one of them has a breach and I get brought in, I'm being deposed, I'm being audited. Then all these things happen to my business. I would like to go back and look at that dentist invoice because the one that wouldn't do any of your security, I'm pretty sure ain't paying you enough right now to deal with what's gonna happen on the back end. MSPs have got to be able to have tough conversations with their clients. I don't say harsh. I say tough. The reality is you are, as a service provider, you are in a shared risk environment. 
your risk is theirs and their risk is yours. A, an audit or an investigation into compliance is like a crack in a windshield, right? It can run all different directions and hit many places where the impact didn't exist. It gets you out here, even though the impact is there. So I do think that as MSPs mature, which, you know, you and I have been in this industry a long time. I mean, man, like you said, I started out hanging you know, access points for Chick-fil-A and putting four, four to gates and racks, right? Um, I, I think the industry has evolved to the place at which, back to the barrier of entry, whatever you want to call it, mature MSPs have to have clients that are having a real conversation about what's the risk that they are facing. And we must go into it saying, I'm going to do my part. And yes, you're going to pay me to do your IT, but doctor, lawyer, whoever you are, there is a part of this that's your responsibility. And if you're not willing to do it, you're, I don't care if you carry a black Amex, man, you're not ruining my business because you're unwilling to invest in yourself. So sure, there's a subsect of doctors and all those things, which can be very cheap. But you know, we're, we got endorsed by the American Dental Association last year, because if you do it simply enough and within reasonable cost, these guys are starting to wake up. The dentists are starting to realize, wait a second, I keep seeing people like me on the news every day, you know, like I've got to fix this. There's no, there's no, uh, you know, there's no instant solution to not frugality, but to just being straight up cheap. There's no instant solution for that. But if you truly understand your risk and you're unwilling to invest to fix it, I don't know, man, maybe go look for another client. I know that sounds harsh. Yeah, Anthony right just popped in and said, no one has the right to be your client. <laughs> and I, you I know, love that. I love that. I'm absolutely stealing that. That's uh, it's a great line. To some degree, Paul, I feel like if somebody hasn't already gone out there and built something uh, or, or built the framework on the other side, what do, what do I mean by that? If the MSP decision maker, business owner, you know, deal signer, has to weight the risk profile of the end customer before they adopt the liability that comes along with taking that customer on. It's almost like a credit score, right? It's almost like I'm taking the same thing and applying it now to the other side saying, hey, you're a 400 credit score. I can't, I can't work with you. Corporations are starting to look at our credit scores before they hire us, right? I mean, just at a human level, there are many corporations that pull you, pull your credit score before they bring you in. Why is that? Look, I'm pretty sure if you have like a 630, 650 credit, you're probably still getting the job, right? Like it's not great, you get a little debt. But to your point, if you have a 400 credit score, there are a lot of people that are not going to hire you because there's something in the back end there that says you are either completely willing to take crazy risks or you're not willing to take responsibility for the things you did in the past. Mm -hmm. So I, I, that, I, I wish there were a way to credit score a client, to risk score a client that we can all agree on. Because the problem is I have one way of doing it. You have another. Matt Lee has a third, right? If we could just score everybody on the front end and say, I'm not going to work with somebody below six. Right. Like I'm not going to. And if I come in and you're a four and you're going to pay me what it takes and allow me to do my job and bring you up to seven or eight or whatever, that is great. But these guys that want to live in the fives and below land and their whole thing is it's never going to happen to me. I mean, I had a scary moment earlier today. I almost got run over by a car. Bizarre, dude. I, it, I'm in the south. I'm, there's a crosswalk, but I live down here and I know people ignore those car stops. I go to walk through. Somebody ran around behind them, like cut around 50 miles an hour, almost ran me over. I don't think I'm ever wow. going to get 
run over by a car. And I don't start my day with that consideration. But you know what I do? The whole time I'm walking through a crosswalk that says I got the right of way, I keep looking that direction because I know where my risk is coming from, right? right. I think that's the way it's got to be. That's, that's, that's a great analogy, but well, I'm glad you didn't get run over, Paul. Yeah, like, me too. Me too. You were about to be talking to yourself here. No, well, let's not do that. Like, let's <laughs> keep Paul alive. Um, it, so it, it'll be it'll be interesting to see, like, if the insurance industry is the one with the stick, right? They're the one that has moved the needle the fastest, the furthest in this whole thing. If they come back and tell you, we won't insure you if you take customers below this standard, that could force the agenda. One thing about cybersecurity insurance or cyber liability insurance is right now it's the wild, wild west. So if I want car insurance or homeowners insurance or whatever, there are federal regulations that determine what is an incident, the way it's managed, what is claimable, what's not, what they have to pay, what they don't. It's very, very rigid, right? Like the, the, the insurance companies have to operate under these guidelines and therefore they're passed along to you. There's really nothing that says what cyber liability insurance companies have to do. I just, I just saw a comment there that said they've seen some that have basically no cyber requirements at all. Right. They don't ask you the right questions. They put weird little clauses in that say, if you ever have a breach that we can prove you were negligent, we're going to drop you. And it's literally that great. So I think the problem is the insurance companies are doing almost speaking out of both sides of their mouth. One group of them are like, yeah, come on. We've got you. We've got you. We've got you. We're never going to pay anyway. The other group is saying, here, fill out this big form. We're telling you we're never going to pay if you do this. But the consumer doesn't understand this. You bought an insurance policy thinking it's like your homeowners, thinking it's like your car insurance or whatever. And you assume I pay you, even if it's my fault and I have a wreck, you're going to fix the car, right? Nope, not at all. And that's a very different insurance world than the ones we're used to. All right, let me give you a scenario, Paul. And if you don't know the answer, it's okay. Say that. But let's say the provider isn't complying, but you, the service provider to the medical provider is. Claim gets put through. Denied? Who's the claim against? The service provider or the or the pay, you know, the client downstream. Well, if it's against the client works. downstream, somebody sues, somebody sues the doctor or practitioner, mm -hmm. the practitioner turns around and sues you. Right. Because it always goes that direction. And Absolutely. now you're like, wait a minute. Hold on a second. So there, there's actually been some some pretty clear cut instances of this happening. For example, I, I think Cottage Health, Health was the one that ended up suing their MSP because they got fined like three million bucks for a misconfigured server. They were able to prove that the MSP in question had left this thing open. Insurance paid to defend the MSP because they were not negligent. It was an errors and omissions thing. They screwed up, but they're organizationally, they weren't negligent. Cottage, on the other hand, didn't have a risk assessment done after a major move, like it was a huge migration. They didn't do anything and that was negligent. So Cottage's insurance did not pay, did not defend them, did not help them. The MSP's insurance actually helped defend against Cottage. Um, that's the world you're in. You, one thing people don't understand is your compliance is your problem and your client's compliance is their problem. Where this whole thing gets murky is that 
when you take on a client that has that compliance issue, you kind of fall into their same category. In HIPAA, we call it a business associate. So MSBs don't think of themselves as healthcare organizations. So you back and you're like, dude, I've got security, I'm fine. No, no, you are in healthcare. You have these same requirements. So if you shore yourself up and you make a mistake, you're fine. That's what errors and emissions and cyber insurance is for. But if you don't have your ducks in a row and you don't have your house in order, whatever you want to call it, you don't have the administrative functional pieces of this in place, then no, absolutely not. Your insurance company is going to use those to pick you apart. I, I actually, I was having this conversation last night and uh, one of the, there's another vendor I was talking to. He's like, you know, my insurance broker is one of my best friends since high school. I've known him forever. I call him and say, hey, don't oversell me. Don't undersell me. Give me what I need and I'll pay you for it. He goes, I never question it. However, when I have an incident, when I have a claim, I call him, what does he say? Call Travelers, 1-800-TRAVELERS, because your broker is not going to handle your claim. The person that you worked with to build this whole thing, you have that sticky relationship. As soon as something happens, what do they do? They turn it over to a team of people, and the first thing they have to determine is, is there a way we don't pay? Is there something that we can find? One little chink in the armor where we can say, I don't want to pay this, because let's face it, insurance companies don't make money by paying claims. They make money by accepting money for insurance and knowing that there are many of these claims they ain't paying off. Hmm. That's it's, it's actually a very true story. The insurance agent, it's effectively just like a sales arm of the insurance company. They don't handle what happens after something goes down. No, and they're, they, they make you feel warm and fuzzy and they tell you how great the coverage is, how few claims get denied and all that stuff. But as soon as you make that claim, that person is out. They have no influence whatsoever. They, not to beat up insurance broker or you know, insurance salesman, but the reality is they are not in a position to tell you that you're going to be covered. It's your responsibility organizationally, read the paperwork, read the requirements and fall in line. And if not, don't get the insurance. It's pointless because I'm telling you, there, there's a, I, I, I think it's San Diego Health. There's a, there's a breach that's happened over on the West Coast right now where the insurance company came in, paid a bunch of money to start defending them. They were proven to be negligent in an HHS audit. And now the insurance company is suing their customer for all the money that they paid out before they found out that this group was negligent. Because they shouldn't have paid Hold on, hold on, hold on. So let me just make sure I heard this properly. There was a claim made against the insurance company they paid out. So that's been the rear view, right? Yep. They got audited, found out, oh, you actually weren't doing what you were supposed to do. So then the insurance company turned around and said, hey, remember us? And came back and tried to get their money back? Yes, absolutely. It's called the... I want to say it's the right to retrieve. It's an insurance company has a right to come back to you and say, I should not have defended you. I should not have paid for that. Give me my money back. And by the way, when they sue you, you're going to pay their legal fees too. You will pay them back more than they paid out. And I mean, as an MSP, I can tell you, I promise you Travelers has better lawyers than you. And as soon as your insurance company drops you, you're calling, you know, better call Saul, right? Like you're calling the local guy to defend you against, you know, a team of insurance attorneys and their whole purpose is to come back and get their client's money back. That's a, that's a business ending situation. Like it you is, don't, not, like depending on your size, you don't make it through that. No, it, even if you're very large, you may not. I mean, there the at that point, the penalties and the payback, it's going to be, if not business ending, 
extremely crippling. Wow. So at what, like, there's so many, like we talked and you brought it up a little while ago. There's special, you know, just like the doctors out there, there are IT firms that are, are specializing in one area, right? Or there may be a consultant or there may be, they, they got brought in to do just one thing and they're, they're out, right? Like, do all of these people, the second they walk into anything, you know, that revolves around the word medical apply to all of this stuff? Or, you know, can you say, hey, listen, I'm not, a, I'm not cert providing you ongoing. I'm, I'm an assassin, right? I came in, I did a job, I rolled out, I'm out, I'm finished. My, my, my interaction with you is now over, right? But like the compliance part, I don't think it cares about that. Like, how does that attach? If you were involved in a breach and it was your fault and you were working with a healthcare organization, for example, you were a business associate when you were able to touch their EPHI. You were supposed to sign the business associate agreement with them. You were supposed to come in line with HIPAA yourself. You were supposed to operate in this way. They will come back after you. No matter if it was a project or it was ongoing, they'll come back after you. If the project resulted in the breach as a day-to-day -day provider, Health and Human Services breaks businesses into three categories, small, medium, and large. And so they have guidelines they're trying to provide for you know, different layers of security at each level. One of the things they say in those guidelines is managed service providers, and they meant medical, but now it's been expanded to IT. If you're a managed service provider, you can't be less than medium. You can't be a small business. And, and MSPs, it, it hurts them because you, you and I both know how many MSPs there are out there. They're one to six, you, you know, six person shops. They view themselves as oh yeah, a ton, right? And, and they view themselves as small businesses. The problem is, let's say I have three employees and nine clients and four of them are medical. That means I have four times the risk of any one of those medical providers. Because if you get to me, you don't get one medical provider's records. You get four medical providers' records. And as you continue to grow your book of work, completely absent of how many people work for you, how much ARR you're doing, what your EBITDA is, all the things that we factor as success in business, has nothing to do with that. Your risk profile is determined by how many medical groups can you touch, how many medical records can you can you have access to, and the fact that you're an MSP means more than one, right? Like, and as soon as that happens, you're medium because your risk is spread across multiple people. But when you're an MSP in the trenches, like I, I used to be, I'm not to pick on anybody. I'm, Full disclosure, I'm that guy that didn't pay himself for two months to make payroll and lived on credit cards so that the people that were doing the work would be able to get paid and my business could continue to grow. When that happened, when I was living that life, I would have considered myself an extremely small business, right? I would have, I would have been like, no, come on, man, I'll have SMB. But you know what? I had three or four little medical clients. And so I was looking at it because I'm broke and because I'm paying my guys less than they're worth and my ARR is under a million dollars and all that. I'm like, dude, I'm tiny. It's not the federal government's perspective on it. Their perspective is how many people can you affect? And we as a community have an incredible impact over the American business culture and the American business community. So you can't contract you know, by contract you can try and limit your liability, but the government really doesn't care about your service agreement between providers. One of the biggest mistakes I see MSPs make is that business associate agreement. I can't tell you how many MSPs I talk to. They're like, oh man, I just don't sign BAs. 
yeah, I work with some healthcare, but I tell them I won't sign their VA. That does nothing for you at all. It doesn't matter. The VA is to protect the doctor. You not signing it has no limitation of your liability whatsoever. You might as well sign it. As soon as you accept their check and you log into their systems, and you have access to one piece of EPHI, you're on the HIPAA bus or you're in the compliance environment. You, you can't choose because you don't like it or because you think you're small or because you think it's simple. You can't say, therefore, this doesn't apply to me. It already did. So, so let me even go a little bit granular, Paul. Let's say somebody comes in, you never had access to log into the system and view charts and records, right? They just ask you to reformat Windows and put the computer back into the exam room and plug it in. Are you still in, in a problem area but, you know, from a compliance standpoint? Well, so a couple of different layers to that. So let's leave IT for just a second. I paint houses. I paint offices. I'm a painter. Okay. I'm not a business associate. I work in your office. Maybe there's a medical record on your desk while I'm painting the wall. I can look down and see it. I need to sign a confidentiality agreement for that doctor that says, hey, dude, anything you see here is confidential. You understand you're not supposed to share this. So a true you know, screwdriver guy that shows up with a blank hard drive takes the old one out, hands it to that doctor right there. They take it away, uses his you know, screwdriver to put that back in. Nah, he's in confidentiality agreement. But I took that laptop to my office to repair it. I walked out the door with it. Health and Human Services released a uh, cloud providers guidelines a couple of years ago that it applies to everyone equally, whether you're a cloud provider or not. They made it very clear, but they say in almost these exact words, if you have EPHI anywhere in your grasp or on your systems and it's encrypted and you don't have the encryption keys, mm -hmm. you're still a business associate. People don't realize that. Wow. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah, extremely specific. So a backup company, Datto, for example, okay? So Datto doesn't have the keys to your encrypted backups, right? Doesn't matter, you're holding the data. So now let's go back to that tech in the field with the laptop, right? Laptop's encrypted, he's gonna go home, put some memory in it, RAM. Let's just do that one. Not touching the data whatsoever, doing a RAM upgrade, putting a new processor in, whatever, you know, the old school or your hardware deal is. You are transporting EPHI. You moved it from inside the building into your van, into your office where you worked on it, you brought it back. Yeah, but I don't have the login. It was all encrypted. Let's go back to the cloud guidance real quick. If you've got the EPHI and it's encrypted and you don't have the keys, you're a what? Business associate. Because the law didn't say, can you read the EPHI? It says, do you interact with it? Do you store it? Do you transmit it? In that case, you interacted with it. You stored it in your office and you transmitted it back to the doctor. Yep. Wow. Okay. So that that just, my, my scenario is really not vague at all. No, no, it's very clear. It's very clear. It's, it's it, anybody out there watching this, you want to reach out, Paul at compliancygroup.com. I will send you the guidelines. It's a very clear article from HHS that tells you specifically why that applies to you. The other side of this, and, and you know, it's funny, George, as an MSP, it, when I was young, I would have taken the same standard. I had a guy yesterday at the booth at Robin Robbins go, what? I never have EPHI. I do everything remote. I log in. I might see it in my remote login session, but I never store it. Okay. So I had the same attitude and I had a level two technician named Ben walk into my office, 
with his laptop open. He goes, look at this. We had a doctor, had a pop-up on Outlook. Every time Outlook crashed, right before it crashed, a pop-up would come up, give him a little error message. Couldn't ever remember what it said. We're trying to capture it. So he see super smart doctor, you know, Windows, screenshot, takes it, puts it in the help desk ticket and sends us into us. But Outlook is open in this screenshot. And here's the pop-up. And here in the preview is, you know, Johnny Smith's medical record sitting on our screen. Well, I mean, he used my automate to send the screenshot to my manage, which then goes to the preview on my dude's laptop. So I now have EPHI. I didn't want it. I didn't need it. I didn't ask for it. Matter of fact, I tell them not to give it to me. But you and I both know I can't you can't prevent somebody from sending you something. You can delete it once you get it. But if it comes into your outlook and it's on your desktop, where is it? I store EPHI now, crap. That's the kind of thing that happens. The MSPs just, I don't mean to say naively, but I think there is a degree of naivety there that we think we control the data that we get. No, you don't. Your client controls the data that you get. It's, it, it's such a simple example, but it happens all the time. All day. As soon it's as that, I say that, that, that guy, Here's an even worse one, Paul, ready, right? To just go like this, click, and then right? they send a picture and a text message, and now all of a sudden it's all over the place. The first business associate that I'm aware of that was ever fined under the HIPAA law was an MSP out of Philadelphia, your hometown. They got fined like $1.5 million for a stolen cell phone. Unencrypted stolen phone at the end of some project. I have no idea why your tech would do this, but they end up with a bunch of EPHI on their phone in the form of pictures of screens during like a checkout. Goes to a bar, sets the phone down, phone gets stolen. His MSP did not have security policies in place. They hadn't done any of the risk assessments according to HIPAA, and they didn't have some kind of bring your own device policy that said, hey, man, you can't do this. You can't use your personal phone to take medical records off of my client's stuff for any reason, for any purposes. I don't care what it is. You can't do this. Without that policies in place, $1.5 million fine for that. It's, it's, so so it now the level of... You know, you know, we, we, we always think life cycle management, Paul, from a from a technology standpoint, isn't really super important, right? You know, but like even when it's the two-year contracts up and you got to switch your cell phones out, you almost need to be able to show, hey, I just you know, my my data was completely wiped, or I shredded that drive, or I destroyed the data somehow, or else pretty much you leave the door open for somebody to come back way later and say, Well, show me what you did. Encryptions like that. So you've got 50 computers, you turn on BitLocker on all of them, they're all encrypted, right? You have a breach later, one of them got stolen, it's gone. How do you prove that device was encrypted? I know mean, your policies say it, but how do you prove it? Mm -hmm. That's why I use managed encryption, right? Like I used a tool to enforce this so that I can have screenshots and historical proof that this is in place. There's a 94% failure rate under audit from HIPAA. 94% of businesses that have been audited have failed over the entire history of time. People don't fail all those audits because they're doing nothing. It's because they're doing something, but not, not all. And even what they were doing, they couldn't prove they were doing when the thing happened later. 
That's why I believe that most businesses that are in these compliance-driven organizations or compliance-driven sectors should be using a third party, if nothing else, even if you're completely internally IT, I would have a third party do my risk assessment. I would have an MSP or an MSSP come in and run my scans and do my risk assessment and take a look at this from outside. I would use a third party tool when self-serving or not to like, you know, validate my compliance so that when they come and ask me, my answer is not like, yeah, man, I got some spreadsheets and a folder and I check. I, I, do, I do the work and I grade my own test. That's a really hard thing for the auditor part of your brain to accept, right? And you never lie, right? You do. You did all the work. You graded your own test, and it's impossible you lied. Something that we we haven't touched on that I think a lot of people aren't aware of that goes right into this conversation is the False Claims Act. So historically, until really 2021, 2022, the False Claims Act has been in place for a very long time. And it was primarily focused on the DOD supply chain. It basically, in a nutshell, in layman's terms, says if the federal government gives you money under certain stipulations and you say that you follow these guidelines and do it, and later it is proven that you were lying to get that money, they can come take roughly three times the amount of money they gave you back, and whoever rats you out is a whistleblower, and they are eligible for 20% of all recovered funds. Okay, so in the world I came from in that DOD space, that means, you know, a big factory gets 90 million bucks to build out the factory, they're working for Raytheon or whoever they're working for, they lie about being in compliance with NIST or CMMC, it's later proven they're lying because their IT guy rats them out and goes, these people haven't implemented any of these controls, the IT guy got rich, you pay all your money back and your business collapses and the government owns it. But now that's being applied to healthcare. They've added $71 million to the false claims enforcement side to say that there are other sectors beyond this that we give money to. So there's a thing called meaningful use, macromets. It's where you were moving as a healthcare care organization to a more modern electronic records kind of an environment. So they gave you tax breaks and incentives. They gave you money to modernize. But the stipulation was every year, you're going to do a risk assessment and show us that you're in line with these guidelines. If later, and it just, just happened to somebody, if later it turns out you were lying, the nurse that rats you out, 20% of all recovered funds, every dollar they've given you, they're going to take roughly three times that back. Now you are broke. And if you're not broke, here's the most like, I, it's the sourest part of this. You can't even fire the person that ratted you out. Like that person is going to work for you forever. They're a whistleblower. There's no repercussions to them whatsoever. So you're about to see, and you're starting to see employees incentivized to tell on you because you're not doing this stuff. It's spooky. Wow, it, it is. <laughs> it's almost a, a system built to, to, to come after you by default. Man, this is where, let's be honest, George, as an American culture and American society, we are not doing well in the cyber war. We are not fighting the good fight. American business has been focused on saving money and keeping the, the ship moving at the right profitability. And collectively, most sectors have not invested in protecting the freaking flag. So if we don't do it, you, you called it the, the stick earlier, here's the carrot. 
do this. We'll give you money. We're going to help you. Here's the stick. If you don't do it, we're going to beat you over the head with a million and a half dollar stick. There's $800 million available right now for rural hospitals and like rural health centers to modernize, improve their network security, improve their network environment. And what's crazy is it's not supposed to be 800 million. It was a couple of hundred million, but nobody takes advantage of it because still no one's doing it. Wow. It's just the, the, the hole just goes deeper and deeper. It's crazy. But MSPs can be the hero or the problem. No, I, I agree. I mean, it's, it sounds like everybody should really just first stop what they're doing, understand where they're at, and figure out what they need to do to not be in a precarious position. And I know that that could apply to a lot of areas. When it comes to what you're doing, right, on this compliance and HIPAA and medical and all this stuff, it's pretty clear, right? Whether it's a private you know, situation, a state situation, or the federal government who's, you know, started the, the, the whole, you know, campaign. There's a lot of, there's, you know, we're talking about risk. There's a lot of risk there. There is. And there's a lot of reward. Remember, customers don't understand what they need. When I hire an MSP as a doctor or attorney or whatever, what I think I am hiring is safety. Hey, George, come in here keep me safe. I want you to take over all this stuff I don't understand. When I go to bed tonight, make sure nothing bad happens. What a lot of MSPs don't realize is delivering just the security and not dealing with the rest of the compliance piece, not dealing with the organizational piece, leaving them on their own to the privacy side. It's like building just the foundation, but not the rest of the house. The foundation of compliance is security, but it's not doors and windows. And if you're not building the walls and the windows and all that, the other elements that don't come up from the floor are still able to get you. If, if you have the tough conversations, you explain to the client the real risk and you get the buy-in that you're going to deliver the solution to all of these problems collectively, you get paid more, the client respects you, the relationship's stickier. Otherwise, the real risk to you is become a commodity. You're just some weird IT stuff that I don't understand. Every time I got to cut costs because the economy is weird and SVB collapsed and it freaks me out, I'm going to remove something from your bucket. I'm going to cut things out from you because I don't respect what you deliver because I don't understand it because you talk about tech. If you talk about my risk, you talk about my business, you talk about my ability to essentially survive in the modern world, I'm listening. Have that conversation. Don't scare the hell out of me. It should be real straightforward. Look, man, I'm doing my part. I need you to do your part. And we are going to go down this path together. The person that joins you on that walk is the client that you want. And back to the very beginning of this conversation, the one that goes, nah, dude, I'm good. Run away. Because one of these days, they're going to call you back and be like, George, help, help, help. It's going to be too late. And you're not going to be involved in the mess that they're in. Yeah, 100%. Paul, how do people find out more about your company and like what you offer MSPs and like how to learn more and, and figure out whether you can help them out? Well, compliancygroup.com, right? The word compliance plus the Y, compliancygroup.com. But I'll throw it out there again. We're not creative with my email address. It is paul at compliancygroup.com. Love to have that conversation with anybody. I'm not in sales. This is one of those, you know, give me a shout ask me your questions. I will try to help answer it. And if we're a good fit for you, we would love to work with you. But one thing I am very passionate about is trying to help this community build, and I'm going to quote my boy Matt again, defensibility. We're supposed to be working with each other and with our clients to defend 
yes, the client, yes, the MSP, but for the love of God, our community as a whole, because I'll say it again, if we don't do this together, it will be done to us. 100. Well, I'm going to see Matt in a little bit. I'll tell you, you said I. Give him a hug for me, man. You got it. Thanks a lot, everyone. This session was recorded. This was really like, we went through a lot of scenarios. So this is a good one to go back and rewind. So you'll find this on mspinitiative.com under sessions uh, in a little while. And by the way, Paul really does get back to people pretty quickly. I mean, I, I message back and forth them all the time. But uh, at the end of the day, if you just want somebody to bounce something off of, it's pretty good, pretty good person to have in your contact list. So appreciate you for coming on, Paul. And I'm sure I'll see you soon. Absolutely, brother. Thank you for having me, man. Great to see you. Have Take a good care. One.